0: Welcome to the first episode of Our Earths, a podcast which explores our relationship with the natural world. I'm Ben.
1: And I'm Kat. Uh, Hi, everyone.
0: And so before we get to today's episode, a couple of pieces of housekeeping. Um, If you're enjoying the content, and we really hope you are, then please do subscribe to the show at iTunes, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you're really enjoying the show, then do please consider leaving a five-star review or just let someone know about the show. It all helps to get the message out. Uh, if you want uh, more information about the uh, the topics that we're covering in today's show, including the book recommendations, then uh, do check out the podcast website. You'll find all of that in the episode description Um, and you'll also find some more information about some of the uh, future plans that we have for the show as well. Uh, And with that out of the way, we hope you enjoy the episode.
1: So I wanted to say a little bit about uh, what we wanted to do with this podcast, Um, and the point of it is storytelling, to tell stories about the human and the non-human world, and to shed some light on environmental issues at a time when these questions are, of course, more pressing than ever. We know that we live in an age of climate change, biodiversity loss and environmental disaster, and most of us are aware of this. But knowing about our past and contemporary cultural attitudes to the environment and the non-human world, um, animals, plants, the landscape, helps illuminate some of these key environmental issues of the day.
0: So, we're really going to focus on a, a, st- a series of key themes about our relationships with the natural world and the environment, human relationships with other living things and environments, and that maybe catastrophes fuel the land. Uh, a little bit about me. So, I'm a communications professional, but I've always had a strong interest in the natural environment. I volunteered at various uh, environmental charities and I think these are very important issues to be talking about, which is why the podcast was set up.
1: And uh, I am a historian by kind of day job. I'm a, a uh, lecturer in history um, in London, um, but I'm also studying environmental humanities, and like Ben, spend quite a lot of time uh, when I do have time volunteering for um, environmental charities and organisations, and like being at um, in nature and the environment and so these are issues that I think about in my work and my writing um and my academic life and also kind of in my my free time and obviously I really care about too um so that's also why we thought that the podcast is you know important to both of us.
0: As you might have noticed neither of us are uh, scientists by background although we both have a keen interest in the topics Um, We want to just emphasise that so you know what you're getting. We're looking at these environmental questions from the point of view of people's cultural and historical relationships with the natural world and their environments, um, in the hope that it'll also encourage a a more thoughtful relationship with those topics.
1: And we also both think that stories are a really important part of the fight against climate change, environmental destruction, biodiversity loss. And we're not alone in that, um, as looking at stories, histories um, and kind of cultural attitudes has become a crucial way for thinkers and researchers to engage in the fight for positive change. There's a load of organisations which focus on climate stories, encouraging people to tell their experiences of living through things like extreme weather events or destruction. And you can find some links to those in our resources section on the website. Um, There's also loads of things like environmental fiction out there, stories about the lives of trees and fungi and even um, a whole kind of uh, sub branch uh, called petrofiction, which is uh, fiction about, uh, as it suggests, petrol uh, and fuel. Uh, You can vote for your European Tree of the Year, for example, the tree with the best and the most interesting story, um, such as the Kipford Leaning Tree on the Windsor coast of Dumfries and Galloway or the Oak uh, Dunin on the edge of Poland's Biawo Wiaża primeval forest. So stories help us to understand the big issues, but also what changes in environment mean and have meant to different communities and stories about our living world and our environment matter now more than ever.
0: So the aim really is to record a few mini-series each year. Um, and the first mini series looks at one animal, the cow. It's about our relationship with a, a non human being. And hopefully, if you enjoy this, we're going to return to this theme in other mini series. We thought it would be a really interesting place to start because cows are everywhere and our relationship with them goes back a really very long way. But also because beef farming and cattle are at the center of some of the most bitter debates over what to do about climate change. The 2014 documentary Cowspiracy already drew lots of attention to issues around cows, climate and farming, and the problem of sustainable beef and dairy farming. At COP26, lots of protesters complained that there was little discussion of farming, despite the fact that farming accounts for around 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Plant-based diets, it is often argued, are one of the most single effective ways to get these numbers down. But that really wasn't on the agenda at COP.
1: But the issues surrounding cows and their place in modern cultures are very complex. We've developed such close relationships with these animals as farmed domestic livestock, and they're also culturally significant in communities around the world. And I was discussing this with my partner, and he said, well, if we were all vegan, what would happen to the cows? We couldn't exactly let them out into the wild, as they aren't really wild animals anymore. Um, That's not always been the case, and we'll come back to that um, question But I thought it was a really interesting issue to raise about the kind of place our our culture has for for cows um, in the contemporary world. So, what is a cow? Why do we see cows as tamed, not wild animals? What's the future of beef farming? Why do some cultures seem to love beef, others see it as taboo to eat? Um, And what's the symbolic meaning of cows in culture? Um, Why do we place different values on them in different places? Why do we tame some of them? And what's the result of that?
0: So we're going to go into some of these questions. There's an awful lot that could be covered uh, in the following episodes. And we're going to be uh, having some interviews with some guests who have particular expertise in these topics. Um, But to get us started, we wanted to do something a little bit more lighthearted. And so we thought we'd take a look at uh, cows throughout history and start with our top seven famous cows. So in Chronological order, we'll start off.
1: So at number seven, an ancient cow, an auroch, painted on a wall in a cave in Lascaux, France, near the town of Montignac. And this magnificent piece of prehistoric wall art tells us of a time when cattle roamed wild. Um, it was discovered in 1940 when four boys stumbled on this incredible discovery by accident, searching for their dog, who'd gone missing. Oryx, now extinct, were ancestors of our modern-day cattle, and the 10,000-year-old painting in in Lascaux of an imposing bull is just one example of surviving evidence of these beasts. There are many other wall and cave paintings that depict oryx and wild cattle, and on Formby Beach, when the tide is right, you can see preserved footprints of these oxen, which stood up to 180 centimetres tall. The, the last one died out in 1627. There are plans to resurrect them through a breeding project called the Taurus Program. And I know that sounds a little bit Jurassic Park, um, but we'll come back to this uh, idea um, in the last episode of the series and how this reveals some important issues about our relationship with the natural world, what we do about things like extinction and how we should deal with those, those problems.
0: So at number six is the Chillingham cow. 800 years ago, cows were enclosed at Chillingham Park, a large estate in Northumberland in northeast England. They were left to roam wild, but this wasn't a medieval eco project, but for blood sport. The cows were essentially big game that could be hunted by the local nobility. The effect of this, though, is a revealing reminder of human actions shaping other living beings by being kept separate. According to Stephen Hall, professor of animal science, they are the only British breed of cattle to have escaped improvement by selective breeding during the so-called agricultural revolution of approximately 200 to 300 years ago. They are white, fairly small, with very large horns and also incredibly rare. Around 150 only Chillingham cattle are in existence and they live on the estate, virtually all clones of each other because of the small genetic pool. They raise some really interesting questions about how human intervention and lack of it shapes the living world. They're advertised as the only wild cattle in the world, but it makes us question what wild really means if they have only survived on an enclosed park.
1: At number six, it's Mrs O'Leary's cow, famed wrongly with starting the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, or slightly, um, if not wrongly, slightly contentiously, This was a devastating disaster which killed 300 people, uh, leaving 100,000 homeless, and in the aftermath, journalists and the public looked for someone or something to blame. And the fire did indeed start in a cow barn owned by Patrick and Catherine O'Leary, Irish working-class immigrants, um, and then the fire spread due to the high winds and dry conditions. The papers seized upon this story and vilified the O'Leary's in their cow, Choosing to lay the blame at the door of this couple and their animal, who supposedly kicked over a kerosene lantern, rather than focusing on issues such as the fact that the authorities had built the city largely with wood. In a city divided by class and social tensions, the story of the cow became a channel for anti-immigrant and anti-working class sentiment. The Chicago Times even went so far as to say um, the old hag had started the fire on purpose in this derogatory language about Catherine O'Leary. The story lived on, um, and a rather amusing war assets administration pamphlet on fire prevention was entitled, Mrs O'Leary's Cow Didn't Start All the Fires. The cow has subsequently been cleared of blame, but it's an interesting example of of how cows become cultural symbols in political and social conflict, and that's something we're also going to come back to later.
0: At number four, Elsie the Cow. During the Great Depression in the 1930s, this smiling cow used by Borden with petals around her head, became the symbol of the American milk industry and was an attempt to boost sales in the struggling dairy sector. Production increased as demand decreased and the evolution of expensive machinery that made farming quicker but made life difficult for small producers. Borden, one of the big milk companies, had already devised the cartoon Elsie to be the friendly face of their operation. And then... When the 1939 World Fair in New York City came around, Borden chose a real-life cow to be Elsie, trying to reconcile the new technology with the traditional rural idea of dairy farming. Elsie, or you'll do Labelia, as she was actually registered, was a big hit and became a celebrity. Still today, Borden advertises its milk as approved by Elsie. It says a lot about the power of ideas about farming, animals, and national identity, as well as the connection to marketing, something we'll also come back to later when we talk to an academic working on beef and the British Empire.
1: At number three, it is Bodacious Bull, perhaps the most famous rodeo bull ever. Rodeo has become something of a symbol of North American culture, uh, linked to ideas of the cowboys of the West and masculine power. Bodacious, a Charbray cross, born in 1988, was a famous bucking bull who grew to uh, £1,850 and was known for being a very dangerous ride. He could jump incredibly high and buck most of the riders off quickly. Being able to master this powerful animal says a lot about displays of the desire for humans to control, um, control and master the natural world and the enduring power of the image of the cowboy. And we're going to do a whole episode on on this um, later. And rodeos are still immensely popular, but also incredibly controversial because of the issues surrounding animal cruelty and the problem, uh, the ethical problem of training bulls for our own entertainment.
0: At number two, a dark story of the first cow with BSE, and that led to the CJD crisis. On the 22nd of December, 1984, news came out of the first cow that had contracted BSE. This was cow number 133 on the Stent farm in Sussex, who had head tremors and loss of coordination. In February 1985, cow 133 died, and this was later found to be BSE, bovine spongiform encephalopathy. This was concerning for farmers whose cows were dying of the disease, but there was also a concern that it would harm humans in ingesting meat from infected cows, causing variant CJD, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. This led, fortunately, only to a small number of cases, 178 in the UK, but it was a reminder of the damage that was done by the way we farm and treat animals. This is what's known as a Frankenstein's disease, referring to the story of the man who created a monster, since BSE was caused by feeding bone meal and meat to herbivorous cows and then allowing an animal pathogen to enter the human food chain, In the wake of COVID and debates over zootropic diseases, it's another reminder of the dangers and harm caused by the ways we treat and encroach on animals' worlds.
1: And then finally, at number one. um, So this isn't strictly a cow, um, but it's the first cultured hamburger. Um, And the first of these was created in 2013. The proof of concept was developed by Mark Post at Maastricht University and sponsored by Google co-founder Sergey Brin. For animal welfare reasons, he he sponsored this this project. So the process to create cultured hamburgers uses tissue engineering processes that have their origin in regenerative medicine. It's often cited as a possible solution to the climate and environmental damage done by meat farming, um, while still allowing people to eat meat. If we can grow burgers and steaks, then it could significantly reduce the water waste and carbon emissions that are the byproduct byproduct of farming, as well as freeing up that land which is used to keep cattle. So it might be the future of food. So that's it for our rundown of cows, famous cows, and some of the issues we're going to be discussing in uh, the podcast. The next episode is going to be about um, cultural meanings of cows throughout history. If you're enjoying the content, do subscribe um, at iTunes, Spotify, um, wherever you um, download podcasts. Remember, if you're enjoying the show, then leave us a review, a five star review. If you'd like to tell someone about the show, um, tweet about it, whatever, that would be great. If you want more information about the topics, check out uh, the book recommendations and the resources and upcoming episodes at um, the website www.oulerthspodcast.com. So that's it um, from us for the first episode and uh, we hope you'll join us next time.